Well, okay. It is uh, great to see all of you here this morning. Welcome to Grace Church at the Medina East Campus this Labor Day weekend. It's awesome to see you. And like uh, Dan and Sarah Beth said just a minute ago, if you are a guest with us here today, so it's your first time at Grace, man, a special welcome to you. We're so glad that you're able to be with us and able to join us. Thanks for being our guest. And uh, if you're a person who maybe is newer or if you've missed the past few weeks, let me kind of catch you up to speed with what we're doing. Uh, you're actually catching us today at the end of a four-week series that we have been in that has been called We. And uh, in this series, we've actually been doing something a little bit different than we normally do here uh, on the weekend services. We've actually been taking these four weeks to process through some of our Grace Church values, some of the values that we have here at Grace Church. And so if you missed the past few weeks, really what we've been saying is this. We've been saying that if you're newer to Grace, uh, Grace is a little bit of a unique church. And one of the things that makes us unique is that we are what is sometimes referred to as a multi-campus church. And so Grace Church is actually one church that exists in eight different campuses in eight different locations. And so it's a multi-campus church. And so sometimes people will ask the question, uh, well, what is it exactly that makes these eight campuses one church? How, how are you united? And we would just say it really boils down to three things. There's three kind of common pursuits that we are engaged in together. And that is that we have a common mission, we share a common vision, and then we have a set of eight values. We have common values that we are pursuing together. And a great way to think of these values is these values are basically kind of deeply held beliefs that we are pursuing together, for those of us who follow Christ at Grace Church, and that we believe followers of Jesus should pursue personally. Okay, so that's what these values really are all about. And uh, also what we said is this. We said that these values, that this didn't come from some corporate strategy, that it didn't, you know, we didn't get this idea from some business book, uh, that these values, that really what they are is they stem from deeply held biblical convictions. And so these values are really our way of trying to articulate different emphases that we believe are in Scripture. And it's something that we said we want to pursue together, and it's something that we want to pursue individually for those of us who are followers of Christ. So, so far in the series, we've had a chance to look at three values. We looked at the value uh, we live to make Jesus make sense. And so the first week, we spent our whole time talking about that. We talked about where, where does that come from the, in the Bible? Um, how are we pursuing that together? And then how should we pursue that uh, individually for those who follow Christ? And the following week, we talked about the value we do hard things. And then last week, if you were here, we talked about the value we share life together. And I would encourage you, by the way, if you missed any of those previous talks, you can get, uh, get those on our website, our app, our podcast. That's all for free, and we'd want you to do that. But this week, as we're closing down the series, we want to look at one fourth and kind of final value uh, during this time. And the value that we want to look at here today, you can probably guess with Dan and Sarah Beth up on stage, uh, is this value right here. The value we are fully committed to kids and students. And so I want to spend our time today thinking through and processing through this value. We are fully committed to kids and students. This is such a strong value here at Grace Church. We actually have a descriptive statement that goes along with it. And so here's how we say it. We are fully committed to kids and students. We unapologetically devote major resources and energy towards shaping a God-centered worldview during a person's prime developmental years. Okay, so I'll just say it again. This is the value we say we are fully committed to kids and students. We unapologetically devote major resources and energy towards shaping a God-centered worldview during a person's prime developmental years. Okay, so this is one of the values that we have 
together. And again, this is such an important value here at Grace that I honestly think that if you're newer to Grace Church, this value will actually help Grace make a lot of sense to you. And so if you're like, why does Grace Church do some of the things that they do? Why do you prioritize some of the things that you prioritize? Why don't you do certain things that other churches do? I think that this value will really help clarify some of those things because it is such an important value to us. I think that you'll understand why Power Kids and why student ministries are such a high priority to us. I think uh, camps and conferences that we do throughout the summer that we promote so heavily will make a lot of sense when you understand this value. I think that our pursuit of uh, partnerships in our community like Safe Families that works with the foster care system and adoption agencies here in Medina, I think that our partnership with Oasis of Hope, which works with um, children who are born into some pretty difficult uh, parenting circumstances will make a lot of sense. I think that our partnership with uh, the orphanage in Uganda, uh, in Uganda, the Sanyuka ministry, will make a lot of sense when we understand this value. So much flows out of this and the decisions that we make. The question that I want to think through is why is this a value of ours? Why do we value this so highly? Is this because, do we value this because we want to be a hip, cool, trendy church? Is that why we value this so highly? Do we value this so highly because we wanna make Jesus kind of fun and we know that you know, the message of Jesus is a little bit offensive and so we just need to kind of you know, soften the blow a little bit, make, it, make Jesus a little more palatable? Is that why we pursue this value? And the answer is a resounding no to those questions. The reason that we make this a value, I'll just tell you, I think is threefold. There's really three primary reasons that we are pursuing this and we are pursuing this passionately. And that's what I wanna talk through for the rest of our time. So here's the three reasons. And I just wanna spend time talking about each one of them. But here they are. Reason number one that we prioritize this value is because first off, it matters to God. Uh, that should be reason enough. We could just stop there. Uh, we believe with all of our heart that out of a biblical conviction that the reason that we are fully committed to kids and students is because the heart of God is that he is fully committed to kids and students and he wants his people to be people who are fully committed to kids and students. So we think it matters to God. Number two, we, we make this a value because it is so easily lost in the church. It is so easy for us to drift from this value. There's a default kind of mode that we all wanna kind of shift away from the priority of investing in kids and students. And number three, it's, it's just desperately needed. Uh, this, this value, and our society today is just desperately needed, desperately. And so let's think through all three of those together. Let's just start at the top. Let's talk about how it matters to God. So where do we see this in the Bible? Well, there's a lot of different places. Uh, the place I wanna invite you to grab your Bibles with me and look at together is actually in uh, Psalm 78. And so if you have a Bible, if you would just flip open to Psalm 78 with me, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, you can just grab one from under the chairs. Page 407 is where you're gonna find Psalm 78 in those Bibles. And then if you don't own a Bible, um, man, just feel free to take one. We'd love for you to, to have a Bible of your own. So Psalm 78 that's where you're gonna go. Now, what we're gonna see as you're flipping there, what we're gonna see in Psalm 78 is one of literally dozens upon dozens upon dozens of examples throughout the Bible where you're gonna see, what you're gonna see, and this is true throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, where you're gonna see that it is God's desire, it is God's heart, that his mission, that his message, and that, and that really his movement that the way that that is transmitted is from one generation to the next. That God's mission, his movement, and his, uh, and, his, uh, and his message, that God wants those things to be transmitted generationally and relationally. 
And so I'll just give you one quick example before we look at Psalm 78. You don't need to flip to this Psalm, but here you see it in Psalm 145. Psalm 145 declares, one generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty and I will meditate on your wonderful works. So like I said, dozens upon dozens of times throughout scripture, you're gonna see this, that God desires that one generation takes God's works and his word and they impart that and invest that into the next generation. Psalm 78, you guys have your Bibles open there. Let's take a look at this. Starts off in verse two. The psalmist says, I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders that he has done. Now look at verse five. It goes on. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law of Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to, notice, teach their children so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they, in turn, would tell their children. Now, then they would put their trust in God and they would not forget his deeds, but they would keep his commands. So I don't know if you noticed, but in this passage, basically the psalmist says it is God's desire that his works, the incredible things that he's done in our lives and his word, scripture, that those things are to be imparted from one generation to the next. It's all over the place in the Bible. And what's also interesting is, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but in this passage and all throughout the Bible, I think you can make a pretty strong case that the onus, that there is a special onus on the older generation to be the one that initiates investing in the younger generation. I think you can make a pretty strong biblical case that, that's, that, that's, that that is the situation, is that God's desire is that older generations would look backwards and that they would initiate, that they're the ones who are responsible for tapping on the shoulder of the younger generation and investing in them. Now, if you're a person in a younger generation in this room, you might hear that and you might be thinking, yeah, older generation, you owe me. You need to come and invest in me. And let me just say before, before you say that, if you're a person in the younger generation, um, listen, going to someone who's in an older generation who follows Jesus and initiating a relationship with them and asking them to help invest in you is one of the wisest things you can do. It's so you're wise beyond your years if you do that. In fact, I would, I would tell you that if you're a young person, you're considering that, that is a great move on your part to do that. However, the Bible seems to tell us that the onus, the onus lies more on the older generation to invest in the younger generation. Now, that includes every one of us, every one of us. And the reason is because all of us know everybody is older than somebody. And so we all need to be looking backwards. And so even if you're a senior in high school, there's middle school students that are younger than you. And even if you're a middle school student, there's elementary school students that are, I've said this before and I'll say it again, I think the most beautiful picture of a church is when every generation is looking backwards at the generation before. And they are pouring and they are investing and they are taking responsibility for and they are initiating and they are tapping on the shoulder and developing relationships where they can pour relationally and generationally into them. So you see that in scripture. What's also interesting is the Bible also is gonna tell us that God's desire is that one generation imparts it to the next, but there is a specific focus, if you notice in scripture, on the developmental years of a child's life. There's a specific focus. So let me give you an example, Deuteronomy 6. This is what the Lord says. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. 
Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. What you're gonna see is that there seems to be a specific focus on children, that God says it's so important to invest in an ongoing way in children during their developmental years. This is gonna be in the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. In the book of Titus, the apostle Paul tells Titus, he says, teach older women to set an example for the younger women. He says, teach older men to set the pace spiritually for the younger men, to invest themselves in that way. And like I said, over and over again, you're gonna see this is the heart of God. The heart of God is that we invest ourselves, that one generation looks back to the next generation. And I think that God's very wise in this. I think that we see the wisdom of God because I believe that what God understands is that when you can impart spiritual truths into a person's life during their developmental years, that it lays a foundation that is going to be set up for the rest of their life. It's going to endure through. That was interesting. I was reading a book probably about, maybe about half a year ago. And I think that in this book, you can just see the wisdom of God. That's actually a book that was written by George Barna uh, called Transforming Children into Spiritual Champions. So George Barna is actually a church statistician. So he basically uh, works with stats and figures. And his book says something I think was really, really interesting. And I think it reveals why this is so important to God. And so he, he pointed this out. He said, 43% of Christians accepted Jesus Christ as their savior and Lord while they were f- between the ages of four and 14 years old. What is now called the 414 window. That there seems like there is a prime moment when there is a particular receptivity to the things of God and laying a foundation that's going to last into adulthood. To four to 14. He goes on to say, it's estimated that 64% of Christ followers begin following Jesus before the age of 18. The 64% of people who follow Christ, usually that began before their their 18th birthday. In fact, let me just ask you a question. How many of you in this room who are followers of Jesus, I know not everyone is a follower of Jesus. How many of you who follow Christ in this room uh, begin following Jesus before your 18th birthday? Just out of curiosity, put up your hand. Okay, just look around. I think that holds up pretty good. Um, And my guess is that if you're a person who came to know Jesus as an adult after you were 18, you wish that someone would have invested in you and you could have followed Jesus and uh, begin to, to know the joy of following Christ uh, at a younger age in some of those things. And so I think what you see here is you really see the wisdom of God. I love what D.L. Moody said. Uh, D.L. Moody, he was a 19th century evangelist and uh, he, went, he was preaching at a revival service and someone came up to him afterwards and asked him how it went. And D.L. Moody said it went really great. He said two and a half people were saved. And the person was like, two and a half people? You mean like two adults and one child? And D.L. Moody said, no, I mean two children and one adult. He said, because if you can save a child, you save a life, you save a whole life. And I believe that's true. I believe that if you can, if you can lay a foundation of, of the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ during the prime developmental years, you can save marriages before they start. You can save financial disasters before they begin. If a person begins to follow Christ, it can start to transform their life in those ways. I don't know if you guys know this or not. Did you know that 11 of 13 major historically documented revivals were sparked by young people between the ages of 18 and 21? 11 of 13. And so I think God has great plans and we, we fully are invested because it's the heart of God to invest in kids and to invest in students. That leads to the second thing. The second reason that we focus on this is, well, yeah, because it matters to God, that's almost like a no-brainer. But the second one is this, is that this value is so easily lost in the church. 
even though it matters to God so much, there's a natural tendency to drift from this. Can I tell you something that I know is true about you and I know is true about me and I know is true about every Christian and is true about every church. This is it. Every single one of us has a natural proclivity towards an inward drift. And we just do. And I'm not even trying to guilt trip you on that. It's just a thing thing. It's in me, it's in you, it's in all of us. Our natural tendency is to think about our preferences, it's to think about our needs, it's to think about our desires and our wants. And it's not to think about the preferences or the needs or the desires of another. That doesn't come natural to us. And so because of that, we said we need to make this a value so that we can hold ourselves accountable to fighting that drift because it happens so much. There was a really interesting study that was done. It's published in a book that's called Autopsy of a Church, of a Deceased Church. Talk about a, uh, man, a horrific name of a book. But in this book, Thomas Rayner is, the, is the, the guy who did the study. Over a decade, he studied um, hundreds of churches that closed their doors and had to pronounce themselves dead. And he identified 11 reasons why, 11 reasons why churches die. And I actually just put a few of them up here. Here's a few of the reasons. The church refused to look like the community. They looked like to, to look like the community they were in. Members became more focused on memorials. And so he talks about in the book how members became more fixated on the decorations that they liked or the symbols around the church that they enjoyed more than reaching the people within the community. Uh, uh, one, of the, one of the marks of a dying church is that the budget percentage for members' needs kept increasing. And he actually goes on to say that the budget for children's ministry and, and student ministries would decrease or would be eliminated. That was the mark of a dying church. Had no evangelistic emphasis. They had more and more arguments about what they wanted. And then members would idolize another era. And so the members of the church would look back and say, the good old days, remember back when? And we need to recapture that. And the problem with this next generation is they're, they're just missing out on what we had at one point in time. Now, we could say a lot about these reasons that are on the screen right now, but I think you'll notice there's one very common denominator that lies beneath all of them, and it is there is a strong inward focus. It's about our preferences, it's about our needs, it's about our desires. And I think we just recognize, we just recognize that's a thing. It's inside of all of us, it's in every church. We are not exempt from that either. And so we said, we need to put a value in place that's gonna hold us accountable, that's gonna keep us true to that because we wanna keep investing that way. It is not the natural tendency for a generation to look back at the next generation and to usually want to invest in them. The natural tendency is to look at the next generation and is to criticize them. And think about it, isn't it one of America's favorite pastimes? We love critiquing the next generation. And, and we all do it, by the way. Even if you're a senior in high school, you do it. The freshmen come in, you're like, these freshmen, kid, they don't know anything about work ethic, right, or whatever. And, you know, if you're, if you're in eighth grade, you're like, these sixth graders, they don't know the, the thing about respect, you know, or whatever. And uh, we all do it. We all do it. I thought this was really funny. Uh, in a book that was published a while ago called You Lost Me While Young Christians Are Leaving the Church, uh, David Kinnaman identified four different generations. So the elder generation, the boomer generation, the buster generation, the millennial generation. And he had each one of those categories self-identify what are the primary characteristics that basically define your generation. And so they basically had a whole list and they comprised them and then they kind of boiled it down to what are the most common words that they used to describe their era. And I thought this was great. They used a bunch of different words. So the elder generation, which is known sometimes as the greatest generation, they identified themselves with World War II and depression, uh, smarter, honest, work ethic, values and morals. 
A very different is the millennial generation. So the millennials said technology use, music and pop culture, liberal tolerant, close. But I want you to notice, I don't know if this, even though they're all different, there's one word that every generation says about itself. You notice what it is? Tell me, what is it? Smarter. Everyone thinks they're smarter. They're like, our generation knows what's going on. The older people are dumb. The younger people are strange. We know what's going on. And I'll tell you what's true is we all do it. I do it. I look at my generation and I'm like, yeah, the older people, they don't know, they're just antiquated. They don't know what's going on in society. They're so out to lunch. And then I think about the younger generation and I'm like, they're just crazy. They're wild. No respect, no work ethic. And I think, you know, our generation, man, that was it. That was the one, you know? Our music, that was the good music, right? Our, our shows, those were the good shows. Like our generation, we had the right way of looking at the world. And we all naturally do this. We, we don't want to invest in the next generation. We want to critique and criticize the next generation. And so it's easy to drift from this. And so we said we, we have to establish it as a value because it has to be that big of a priority. We have to fight that drift because it matters to the heart of God. And that leads me to the third thing, and maybe the most heartbreaking of them all, and that is, this is just desperately needed. This value in our society is desperately, desperately needed. Um, I was reminded this last week, I read a book about a year ago, and I got it out again this week and reread it, because I was reminded of a few things uh, from this topic. And so I reread the whole book this week and I sat, sat down and I was reading the thing, read the whole thing. And the whole time I was reading this book, my heart was breaking and my gut was just ripped. And I remember I thought to myself when I was reading this book, I think every follower of Jesus needs to read this. I think every follower of Christ. If you're a parent, I think you need to read this. Even if you're not and you're a follower of Christ, I think you need to read it. The name of the book, it's called Meet, Meet Generation Z. Uh, it's by James Emery White. Um, he is both a theologian and a pastor and a statistician. And he writes from more of a statistical analytical vantage point. But in his book, he writes about the unique challenges that Generation Z is facing, the young people among us. Now, if you don't know what Generation Z, who that is, that's basically anyone who's born from 1995 and later. And so it's basically anyone who's 23 or younger. It's the youngest among us. Some of you are in this room right now, uh, Gen, Gen Zers. And as I read this book, I, I just kept thinking, man, I wish I could share everything that I read with you. That's why I can't just read the book, okay? It's really important. But I wanna just highlight a few things that he points out about young people today. So who are the kids and students today? Well, one of the first things he points out is he talks about something that they call the rise of the nuns, the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, by the way, not N-U-N-S, if you're listening on the podcast, uh, not like that, not like the rise of the nuns. <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like a horror movie, doesn't it? <laughs> rise of the nuns, they're going to come and get you. And uh, yeah, not that. So it's, uh, it's N-O-N-E-S. And what it's referring to when it talks about the nuns is it's talking about people who have no affiliation with any religion. And so if you gave them a box and said, check which box applies to you, what religion do you adhere to? They would check the box none. And what he shows is that right now, the largest religious group of people in our country is the nuns. That, they, that is the, the, the widest religious affiliation. And so this is what he says. He says, in a study conducted back in 2015 based on its massive U.S. religious landscape, the category of Americans who claim to be none was 23%. 
or nearly one out of every four adults. That makes the nuns the largest uh, religious group in the United States. And so now that is the largest category. Now, what's fascinating is you compare that with previous eras. So in 1940, 5% of people would identify themselves that way. 2014, 23% would identify themselves that way. What's even more interesting is, as you'll notice, that people who are under 30 years old, adults under 30 years old, so 18 to 30 years old, 36% would claim to be that way. Now, what anthropologists would do is they would look at this and they would say that this is all a picture of what they call secularization of a society. What secularization is, if you've never heard of that term, it basically is the idea that there is a detachment between any religious adherence and a particular culture. So at one point in time in history, America would have been considered somewhat of a Christian nation. A lot of people would look and say, well, America was founded on Christian values, that the majority of people would identify themselves as Christian people. Um, you know, there was a time in our country where it would have been culturally advantageous for you to be a Christian. You were considered a good person if you were a Christian. That is increasingly not the case. And many of you know this. You know now today that if you're a Christian, you're usually the minority in your peer group, in your work crew. At one point in time, it was culturally advantageous for you to be a Christian. You were viewed as a good guy, not anymore. Now, if you're a Christian, you're viewed as a bigot. You're viewed as someone who is culturally out of date. Uh, you are viewed as someone who is intolerant of other people. And you're not the good guy, you're the bad guy. And that is happening more and more in the society that we live in. And so what we see is there's the rise of the nuns, less church adherence and attendance, less people engaged in Bible, less people following or attempting to want to follow God in society. Now you take that and you pair that with the second reality. And the second reality that Generation Z is facing is that they are for the first time what James Emery Wright calls true digital natives. And this is a society of people, this is a group of individuals who do not know a world without the internet. If they were born in 1995, they don't know a world without Google. They don't, they don't know a world where if you wanted to know something, you could just Google it. This is a group of people who speak the language of social media. It is the platform that their life is lived out on. Uh, they speak in images, in emojis, in GIFs, in videos. That's how that all works together. In fact, it's interesting. I don't know, do you know what the 2015 Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year was? 2015, Word of the Year, Word of the Year, Oxford Dictionary was the LOL emoji. That was the Word of the Year. And I think that that's really defining that even the way we communicate it, the language is changing and how we communicate to each other. Now, I'll be the first one to tell you, and if you know me, you know this, I am not anti-technology, not at all. I love uh, in many ways what the digitization of society has done to connectivity, we're more connected than we've ever been, to communication. We can know about a disaster somewhere in our country or somewhere in our world, and we can pray and we can respond immediately. That's awesome. But I think all of us know there's a real dark side to all of this. There's a real dark side especially, especially, especially when you have all of this access to anything that you want without any restrictions that are put on you. Jim Zinner Wright talks about this. This is what he says. He says, one of the marks of Generation Z is that they're being raised by, by and large by Generation X, a generation that was warned repeatedly not to become helicopter parents, always hovering over their children. As a result, Generation Z has been given more space and more independence than any other generation and this means that Generation Z is very self-directed. And he actually goes on to talk about how in Generation X, 
they reacted against helicopter parenting and it led to this movement that they call free range parenting. And free range parenting is essentially this idea, it's a hands off approach in every aspect of parenting. It is, I will allow my kid take, to take the lead in everything, in what they learn, and what they eat, and what they consume, and what they watch. There is no restraints that are put on them whatsoever. Now you think about that, parents that have no religious adherence, no, no concern for the things of God, who have digitized kids and put zero restraints. And that is an equation for disaster. This is what he says. Reflect on this in relation to Generation Z. Consider the effect of an underprotective family environment in a day of sexting and Facebook, bullying in schools, internet porn, cutting and hooking up. When children need to be protected as never before, they are met with a parenting culture that is less protective than any other time in recent history. It's interesting, there's more depression and anxiety among children today than there has ever been. Psychologists would say it is epidemic levels. And one of the reasons they point out is because kids have so much exposure to things that they don't have categories to process through in a mature way. And so they're being exposed to more than they've ever seen. They're being directed and led less than they've ever been. Philip Zimbardo, um, is, he, he is uh, not a Christian at all. He gave a TED talk that was called The Demise of Guys. And in, in this uh, study that he did, he talked about how mainly the, prolifer the proliferation of video game usage and pornography usage is destroying our young men. And here's what he said. He pointed this out. The typical young man in America averages 10,000 hours of video game play by the age of 21. Just to give you some sense of scale, it takes half that amount of time to earn a bachelor's degree. It says this, because of such high levels of gaming and pornography exposure, young men lack confidence and skill to interact in life. And he talks about how young men today have a difficult time setting goals and achieving them in real life and how young men today have a difficult time interacting with the opposite sex in a meaningful way. And he points to the direct correlation between those things in the gaming community and pornography usage. Now think about this, in addition to that, 40% of kids in America, 40% of kids in our country are born without their father involved. From day one, dad's not even there. And it's, I'm telling you, it is affecting us in huge ways. And maybe the most disheartening of them all, but probably the most obvious of them all, it's the pornification of society. It's the pornification of the world that we live in. Without a doubt, we live in one of the most sexually charged times as a culture. This shows up in so many ways. It shows up in the internet, in the media, in our music. One person said, and I think they said it rightly, that pornography is the wallpaper of our lives. It's always in the backdrop somewhere. Every multimedia faucet, whether it's music or it's internet or whatever, it's there, it's, it's back there somewhere. And just consider internet porn for a minute. So internet porn, uh, first exposure to pornography on average is between the age of eight to 11 years old. And by the way, the, the later you read articles on this, the later in years, the, the lower that number gets, the lower that age gets, eight to 11. In 2014, one porn site alone had over 15.35 billion visits, it's with a B. Just to put that in scale, 2015, there's an estimated 7 billion people on planet Earth. 15 billion people. Young people are increasingly looking to porn for sex education. There's an article that was written in New York Times back in 2018. The name of the article was what teenagers are learning from online porn. 
American adolescents watch much more pornography than their parents know, and it's shaping their ideas about pleasure, power, and intimacy. And one suburban boy who uh, decided to go anonymous in this interview, he said this, and I quote him about pornography, there's nowhere else to learn about sex, and porn stars know what they're doing. You hear how absurd that is? That's like saying, I wanna learn how to be an open heart surgeon by watching the show Scrubs. It's so dumb. But do you hear this? Do you hear what he's saying? There's nowhere else we can learn it. No one else is showing us this. And so we'll go to the porn stars. They know what they're doing. This has led to violence. This has led to um, objectifying women. All kinds of bad things are, are flowing from this. Did you guys know that one of the biggest worries among teenagers in our school systems, not just in the world, in Medina and in Highland, did you know one of the biggest worries that kids have is revenge porn? Do you know that? You know what revenge porn is? It's a couple breaks up and one person is disgruntled with the other person, so they send out naked pictures of that person to all their friends. It's a real concern that our teens and our kids are dealing with in the world that we live in. So you see it in the internet, you see it in media. You see it in the media. Think, think about this for a minute. Um, back in uh, 1969 to 1974, one of the most popular shows watched by all age categories on national television was The Brady Bunch. And The Brady Bunch, when that show came out, it was actually, uh, it was really provocative uh, because it was one of the first shows on national television that basically promoted and elevated a, um, a blended family, right? And because of that got a lot of backlash, people were like, this is too cutting edge. But what's interesting about that show is, as provocative as it was, did you ever see the Brady Bunch bathroom? I'll show you a picture of it. Here's the Brady Bunch bathroom. And uh, so they would shoot scenes of the kids brushing their teeth and getting ready for, for school or whatever. But there was one thing that was missing from the Brady Bunch bathroom. I don't know if you noticed in this picture, but can you tell what it is? There's one thing that is missing. It's a toilet. There's no toilet in the Brady Bunch bathroom. And they asked, the, they asked the producers, why didn't you put a toilet in the Brady Bunch bathroom? And here's what they said. They said, because that is far too inappropriate. And it will conjure up images in the minds of our watchers that we think are not suitable uh, on television. Now, fast forward, 2018, 2019, one of the most popular shows, top five most popular shows watched by all age categories, by the way, is Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones in season one, season one alone had five rape scenes and 33 naked or sex scenes in it, in that one show. Now some of you are like, no, but Game of Thrones, that's like a grown-up show. Okay, but did you know that one of the largest viewing categories are people under 18 years old? And you just see it, man. It's showing up, it's showing up in our media. It's showing up in internet. The pornification site shows up in our music. Katy Perry. So Katy Perry, I don't, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with um, her work, but Katy Perry is a woman who is actively marketed to young girls. So she is actively marketed to tweens, girls between the age of nine and 12 years old. You can tell that she's marketed to young girls by her cupcake dress, by her bubbly personality, by her colorful image, those type of things. And she's marketed to this age group. In fact, Nickelodeon's Kids' Choice Awards, for the last eight years, she has been either nominated or has won those. And so it's working. It's working. And what is the message that Katy Perry is propagating to our girls? Well, I'll just show you a few of them. How about this? This one is from uh, Teenage Dream. Let's go all the way tonight. No regrets, just love. Let, let, let you put your hands on me in my skin-tight jeans. I'll be your teenage dream tonight. Or how about last Friday night? Last Friday night, yeah, we danced on tabletops. We took too many shots. I think we kissed, but I forgot. 
Last Friday night, yeah, we maxed out our credit cards, got kicked out of the bar, so we hit the boulevard. Last Friday night, we went streaking in the park, skinny dipping in the dark, and then had a menage a trois. And you know what's crazy? Is that this song is so catchy. Like, even as I was reading, I'm like, oh, that's, you know, I kind of like that. Last Friday night, like, that's pretty nice. And you're like, wait a minute, what's she saying? And listen, I don't think, I just give her the benefit of the doubt. I don't think Katy Perry is thinking that, that she would go to a nine-year-old little girl and get down on her level and say, sweetheart, you know what you need to do? You need to put on your skin-tight jeans. You just need to let him touch you, and you go all the way. No regrets. I don't think she would do that. I don't think Katy Perry would go to a 10-year-old little girl and say, you know what's fun? You know, what's, you know what fun is? Get obliterated drunk. And then have a menage a trois. That's fun. I don't think she would do that, but that is exactly what's happening. You know, it's crazy. You think about it. We could talk about the pornification of society. We could talk about broken homes where fathers are not connected or involved. We could talk about video game usage without any restraints on it and the effect that that's having. We could talk about all of these things. I could give you so many more stats, but I don't need to to let you know that this is desperately needed. Let me just say that if you are a follower of Jesus and you're part of Grace Church, look up here for a minute. If the church of Jesus Christ will not contend for kids and students, it is not that they won't be contended for. They're being contended for. They're being contended for. Somebody is fighting for them. It's happening. It's happening. And if the church of Jesus Christ won't contend for them for the name of Christ, then who's going to do that? The Bible says that there's an enemy and that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. And the Bible says he hates you and he hates your kids. He hates our kids. And what he wants more than anything is he wants to destroy any semblance of joy that they could have in their life. And he wants them to believe that the way to find life is to run away from God. And that if you run towards God, that God is restrictive and restraining and that there's no joy found in him. That's his greatest desire. And he is contending. He's fighting. And if we don't, who will? Pastor Jeff, our senior pastor at Grace, he said it so well. I'll just quote him. Here's what he said. There's plenty of pornography for our kids. There's plenty of drugs and alcohol for our kids. There's plenty of sexual immorality for our kids. There's plenty of false teaching for our kids. There's plenty of information that doubts the existence of a creator. There's plenty of broken homes. There's plenty of fatherless boys. There's plenty of that. There's enough of it. It's enough. It's bountiful. And then he goes on and he says, and if the church of Jesus Christ will not get in between children and hell, then who is gonna do it? Who's gonna do it? It's not that they are being uncontended for, it's that they are being surrendered to the evil one. No one else will fight for them, not for the cause of Christ, nobody. So men of God, fight for the hearts and the minds of these boys. And women of God, fight for the hearts and the minds of these girls. And I think he's right. I think he's right. And so we have to ask ourselves, 
followers of Jesus, church of Jesus Christ, we have to ask ourselves some pretty important questions. And here they are. First off, will we pray? Will we be people of prayer? Will we be people who look at the next generation and criticize them and shake our heads in disbelief and disgust? Or will we be people who say, no, we're gonna pray. We're gonna get down on our knees and we are gonna plead with the God of the universe that he would save them, that he would save and that he would send. Matthew chapter nine, the Bible says that Jesus looked and he saw that the people were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know what Jesus' response was? The Bible says that he was moved with compassion and he said to his disciples, he said, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest that he might raise up workers. Will we pray? Will we criticize? Or will we say, no, we are gonna fight. We're gonna pray. We're gonna ask God that he would save and that he would send more people who would invest. Will we engage? Will we engage? Will we actually engage ourselves in this? Will we do that? Will we look at the next generation and we pour ourselves into them and invite them to take their place in the story of God? Because no one else will. This is, this is why we do things like Power Kids. This is why we value things like student ministries. This is why we do camps and conferences. This is why we work with safe families. This is why we work with the orphanage and you guys. This is why we do all of these things. Will we engage in those things? I know some of you might've thought when we first started today, you might've thought, okay, Dan and Sarah Beth are given announcements and we're gonna be talking about and fully investing in kids and students. They must need more help in the nursery. The church is always looking for more volunteers in the nursery. They probably don't have enough people to watch the babies. And maybe I'll get guilt tripped into doing it and I'll go back and I'll watch some babies. That's what they're going for. So can I just tell you something? Let's tell you something. What we need is we don't need more volunteers. We don't, we don't need more people who are like, I'll hold a baby if I need to. I'll be with middle school, middle school students if someone else won't do it. Uh, we don't need that. We don't need that. Can I tell you what we need? We need soldiers. That's what we need. We need men and women who will fight for this next generation. Listen, we need people who will go back and hold our babies and will sing Jesus loves you in their ear and pray for them. We need people who don't say, I'm willing to endure some immaturity so I can be with the kids. We don't need that, okay? What we need is we need men and women who are saying, I will be a role model to them. And I'll step up because they don't have any good ones. Not for Jesus. It's college students saying, I'll invest in high school students. I'll do that because they look up to me for whatever reason. Who knows why? It's us saying, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll step in. Will we engage? Will we step in? You know what we need? We need parents who will disciple their kids and who will prioritize that in their lives. Let me just say, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room and you're a parent, man, I love you guys so much. And I don't ever want to make you feel guilt-tripped about anything. But can I just please, 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 prioritize discipling and investing in your children, please. We wanna partner with you, we wanna help you with that, but only you can do that. Only you could, at least to the level that you prioritize education. Think about it, it's so absurd for you to think with your kids. How absurd would it be if you looked at your kid and you said, you know what, if you don't feel like going to school, no big deal, you don't have to go to school. What if you looked at your kid and you said, math, I'll let you, I'll let you just figure out what you believe about math on your own, whatever someone decides, no. 
You'd say, no, this is a priority, and we're making this a priority. We're talking about eternal things. Prioritize it. And parents, we wanna help you with that. You know this. This is why we offer these classes, these high-impact parenting classes. I don't know if you guys know this. Did you know that there's a wall back in the Power Kids section called Family Resources? And this, I mean, this is awesome. There are parent cues. It literally will say, if you're having a hard time figuring out how to invest in your kids spiritually, here is a parent cue. It gives you bullet points. Do this, try this, invest in these ways. But I'm just telling you, no one else is gonna do it if you don't do it. If we don't jump in that, will we invest ourselves? Will we engage? And the last one is, will we invest? Are we willing, are we willing to pay the, pay the price? Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, we'll pay the price. You talk about, you want my comforts, my preferences, fine, I'll give them up. It's not the music I like, doesn't matter, I don't care. Because if we're reaching kids and students, then that's all I care about. Just, I will gladly lay my preferences aside. We're gonna prioritize those ministries over other ministries, fine. And if we're reaching kids and students, then you know what, my needs can take a backseat. I, I can gladly find another place to meet that somewhere else, so in some way in our church or outside, whatever it might be. Are we willing to pay the price in those ways? Are we willing to pay the price, whatever it takes, that when we need to send kids to camps and conferences, that when the kids, when, when the student ministries break something, which happens like only every week, when that happens, we pen the check, fine. Fine, we want them here, fine, we love it. Are we willing to invest our time, our time? Some, some of you really need to pray about whether or not you need to be a foster parent, maybe you need to adopt. Some of you need to seek God's will on that. Some of you need to pray about being connected to San Yuca, to the, to the orphan ministry there. Some of, you, some of you need to pray about maybe involving yourself in Power Kids or Student Ministries once a month, signing up and saying, you know what, because it takes a village We'll do that. We'll invest ourselves. Some of you need to pray about discipling somebody who's younger than you. Some of you need to pray about in your life group, helping serve the kids, discipling them in some way. There's a lot of different ways you can show up, but will you invest? Will you invest? Or, or are we just gonna sleep? Are we just gonna slumber? It's a really haunting quote from the 12th century. Back in 12th century England, uh, underneath the reign of King Stephen, was one of the darkest times in England's history. And there was torturous and terrible things that happened. And one of the most uh, haunting quotes that came from that season was an author who said this, and it was said openly that Christ and his saints slept. During one of the most difficult times in history, Jesus and his church appeared to be asleep, uninvolved. And so we do the same thing, or we stand up and we'll say no. We're going to awake ourselves to this and we're gonna do something about it. Man's gonna come up and I know that this is a bit of a heavier message um, today, but uh, I thought maybe I'd end with kind of a story that I think, a quick story that kind of encapsulates it, it all. So it's probably several years ago now here at Grace, there was a woman who was part of our church, dearly loved woman, and she was in her late 70s and she's since passed. And she, so she's home with the Lord now. But she was someone who was just so dear to, to so many uh, of us who were part of Grace. And I remember one day I was done preaching and I got off the platform and I went into the cafe and this woman found me. She was there and she came up and she gave me a big old hug. She was, like I said, she's a dear woman, dear friend. And she came and she gave me a big hug. And she said, she said to me, she said, I just love this church. I love this church so much. And I remember we kind of had some time. So I remember I kind of looked at her and I said, you know, I just gotta ask you, why do you love this church? I just have to ask you, 
why do you love this church? I said, because, you know, you're not kind, of the, not kind of the normal demographic of the people that go to this church. And she's like, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? And I was like, ooh. <laughs> and so I said, uh, I said, well, you're way more attractive than all of us are, obviously. And she was like, no. She's like, I know, I'm, I'm, so I'm quite a bit older than everybody else that's here. And I said, yeah. I said, so what, you know, what is it? I said, is it, uh, I said, it's got to be the music. I said, I know so many people love this church because the music is so good and, the, you know, the musicians are so talented and it's always so engaging. And she, she said, um, no. She was no. She was I really don't like the music. And uh, she said, I, I kind of prefer hymns and, you know, it's kind of how I grew up. And I said, I understand that. She said, I actually wear earplugs during the music. And the... Um, <laughs> The ushers actually give people earplugs if you request them. And so she would put them in and she said, these were her words. She said, I endure the music. <laughs> and I was like, okay. I said, well, if it's not the music that you like about the church, well, you know, it's, it's gotta be, you know, something else. <laughs> I said, so uh, what exactly is it you like about the church? You know, I said, is it uh, preaching? Is it preaching? And she goes, um, no. <laughs> She said, she said you're, you're fine. You do a good job. She said, I prefer to listen to Charles Stanley. And I was like, you crazy old woman. You know, and I, didn't, I didn't say that. But I said, uh, I, said I get that. I said, I, I, can, I, can, I understand that. I like Charles Stanley too. And I said, but, uh, I said, well, then what is it? And this woman started to point to all the children who were running around the, the cafe like crazy people. And she pointed at all these young mothers and with tears in her eyes, she said, that's what I love. That's what I love. And she said, I have lived my whole life following Jesus. She was a widow. She said, me and my husband had a marriage that was centered in Christ. We didn't do it perfect. She said, but we, we went through our whole marriage trying to honor Jesus. She said, we've raised our kids in the Lord, not perfectly, but they're following the Lord. And she said, these women don't know the first thing about what it means to be a mother and what it means to be a woman of God and what it means to be a godly wife. And she said, I'm here for them. I tell you, I just looked at her and I thought to myself, you're my hero. I wanna be you when I get older. That's what I wanna be. Different gender, but I wanna be you. <laughs> right? And then I, uh, I was just so full of thankfulness. I looked at her, I was so full of gratitude. I looked at her and I just said, I couldn't think to say anything else. I just said, do you have any idea how unique you are? You know what she said to me? She goes, I know. <laughs> I was like, and you're humble. So she's got that going for her. That's our heart, man. That's our heart. We are fully committed to kids and students. Why? Because it matters to God, because it's easily lost in the church, because it's desperately needed. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you invested in us that you've poured yourself, you laid aside your preferences and your rights and your luxuries so that we could be called children of God. Thank you for that. We recognize, Father, we can't do this without you. We're desperate. We're desperate for your help. And we look about what's coming in this next generation, Father, it's overwhelming. And God, we can't think outside of ourselves, not on our own, we just don't know how. But Jesus, with you, we can, because of your example and because of your power. And so I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would raise up in this church a group of people that would stand between children and students in hell and would contend and would fight for the sake of the gospel. Father, we pray for this next generation. We ask you that you would fill us with compassion. Help us not to slumber, but to be involved and to be connected. 
Father, we just thank you for the love that you have for us and we ask these things in Christ's name.